You're listening to an Influicity podcast. You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Welcome to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Today, I'm talking with Ed Sims, the president and CEO of WestJet Airlines. He's really had a remarkable and vast journey in the airline industry. He's going to talk to us about the numerous crises that he's navigated in his journey and his career. We're going to learn a lot about facing pressures, but also how you balance those pressures in your personal and professional life when you're leading such a large organization and what has brought him to where he is today. Some great nuggets in today's conversation. Thank you for joining me. I really do appreciate you taking the time in such a busy time, not only in your business, but in your career and I imagine your personal life as everybody else is dealing with the new normal. Um, and so I just want to backtrack um, to the beginning of your journey and get a little bit of history on who Ed Sims is and where did he come from? How far back do you want to go, Manjeet? <laughs> <laughs> this is a short podcast. Yeah. Look, I've been in uh, aviation, hospitality, tourism, virtually all of my career. So that's kind of 30 plus years. And I'll roughly divide it into into three parts. I spent the first 15 in the UK. And before I left the UK, I was working for uh, the Virgin Group and running um, the e-commerce division of the Virgin Group for Richard Branson. And then I left and went to Australia and New Zealand. And I guess I'd divide that into, I spent 10 years working with Air New Zealanders there chief operating officer, and then went into air traffic control and ran air traffic control for New Zealand. And the last three years, I've been in Canada. Uh, so I'd spoken with WestJet back in 2010, right. and they kept tending me, and I kept looking at the uh, at the weather forecast and seeing temperatures that I'd never seen before and <laughs> coming up with reasons not to come. But I came in uh, mid-2017, so I've been here almost three and a half years. And it's been the most extraordinary time. I mean, an incredible learning experience. I, I worked through, you know, when I first took over as chief exec, which was in March 2018, we had to work through a pilot strike. We had to work through the introduction of the new 787. Uh, then we had the MAX grounding, which has been going on now for about 20 months, and everyone's forgotten about it really because of COVID. True. We privatized last year. It was the single largest private equity deal in the history of aviation globally, anywhere in the world. So we were pretty tired after that. And then, then we got hit by COVID. Right. So it's been, you know, cheapest. It's been a career in aviation in the last three years, just on its own. It's been uh, the most extraordinary time. And I've loved being in Canada. And, uh, you know, people seem to forgive me my accent, which is very kind of them. And, and so how do you feel Canada compares to the rest of the world where you've not only lived but operated um, as an executive? Yeah, look, you know, I think the most obvious difference for me, Manjeet, is, is what I would call breadth over depth. Hmm. So I've worked in markets like Australia and New Zealand that really belong to the generalists. They really love breadth. They love general management. They love succession management. Um, and they love to encourage people to move completely outside comfort zones. So I was moved at one point, you know, I was running the commercial side for New Zealand, and then they moved me into uh, running the operational side and they just assumed that would be a seamless transition. And and coming to Canada is more of uh, the, I see more technical depth than general breadth. 
So if you think of it as two different letters, you know, Australia and New Zealand really focuses on the T. So your horizontal is as important as your vertical. Right. Whereas coming to Canada, there's been more emphasis on the vertical. And one of the things that I've been really trying to encourage uh, within WestJet and within, you know, Canadian corporate culture is to think about generalism, to think about the importance of being able to move across disciplines. So that's been the most significant contrast. But I mean, what I love is the similarity between New Zealand corporate culture and Canada, because we're two small nations next to really noisy neighbors. And uh, that creates a sense of, you know, having to punch above your weight, having to make your voice heard more loudly and more clearly, uh, having often to take a kind of moral high ground when people assume you are part of this kind of broader amorphous culture. Um, so the, 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 there's actually been way more points of similarity than points of difference. Do you find yourself being willing to take more risk in your life, in your career? Yeah, look, what, what it taught me was that you have to kind of bifurcate your life in some ways from the operational side in aviation, which is so heavily regulated and, and that, you know, rightly so safety conscious. There's nothing more important in aviation. But if you let that creep into the commercial side, you start to become really conservative. You start to become really timid. Uh, you don't take risks, uh, whether it's kind of through pricing, through networks, through marketing. So what I learned from Rich is how to keep those two sides separate. Uh, and I've tried to do that in, you know, personally as well. I mean, I am the world's most boring person. <laughs> I don't uh, know that, okay. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you have to contain the amount of risk in, you know, on your professional side. And, and but also, you know, I, I think of myself as an introverted leader in an extroverted world. Hmm. And, and WestJet would be the most extroverted company, but actually so was Virgin. Uh, so you have to make sure that you can manage your energy levels uh, to be constantly on and to be constantly under a uh, spotlight. Uh, but then, you know, in my private life, I have to give myself time to be able to recover and recuperate. So for me, it's all about bifurcation and compartmentalization. Yeah, and because we too are in such a highly regulated business with alcohol, right? There's so many things that we can't do yeah. outside the box. And so we very early on, same thing, got very creative with marketing and how can we, you know, operate manufacturing differently? Like, what can we do to separate um, ourselves against just like WestJet, um, companies that have been around for hundreds of years? That is not an easy task, but a challenge nonetheless. So I, I feel that you like challenges and getting uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, somebody, uh, one of our mechanics in a hangar recently said to me, you're just the Lee Iacocca of the airline industry. And I couldn't tell whether that was a compliment or an insult. But, you know, one of the things I've been heavily involved with has been turnarounds and transformations. So I came, uh, you know, the kind of the second part of my professional chapter was when I moved to Australia and New Zealand. And uh, New Zealand have got a great reputation for, again, punching above their weight and, 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 building a reputation way beyond um, the size of the country or the size of the operation. But when I joined them, they just made a really disastrous investment in Australia, uh, in the second largest airline in Australia. They'd made themselves 100% shareholders and the airline collapsed. I was with them at the time. I was running all of their retail operations in 2001 and they collapsed just after 9-11, uh, putting 16,500 people out of work. I was running 800 retail outlets uh, for them at the time. So, New Zealand found themselves with 
you know, a couple of billion dollars of liability from the collapse of that operation, repaying frequent flower points. It was a, it was a real, real mess. And uh, they had to borrow 600 million from the government. Um, this was in late 2001, just to fuel the aircraft. Uh, so I walked into the middle of that and I was asked to turn around uh, their frequent flyer uh, liabilities, the all of the airline partnerships because they were in Star Alliance. There's a whole bunch of airlines right. uh, feeling pretty aggrieved. And I was part of a very, very small team that said, if we just had, you know, maybe we had 10 pilots and 20 cabin crew on one aircraft, where would you start from? Uh, think of yourself to be as small as you possibly could be and then think of the rebuild. And, you know, that was that was an extraordinary period to go from working from Richard Branson in a in a startup and a development and, a, you know, a high, high velocity growth mode to go into total turnaround mode. Uh, and then, you know, within a couple of years of, of kickstarting the commercial turnaround, uh, my boss at the time turned to me and said, I'd now like you to run the operation and I want you to manage um, a couple of thousand pilots and, and four or five thousand flight attendants. Um, so, yeah, I guess people do tell or do sense that you've got an appetite for risk. You've got an appetite for change. Um, you know, I love working with people who've always got their hands up to take more on than right. I can possibly give them. Uh, but, you know, as somebody said to me early in your career, you know, bite off more than you can chew and then chew like crazy. <laughs> and, I've, you know, I've pretty much done that ever since. Really. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it sounds like, you know, your career has definitely been exciting, but scary at times. And I'm sure that's what has fueled your continuous learning, uh, because in all of those positions that you described, never mind what's going on today, um, you know, you can't prepare, you can't research, you can't study, you can't be taught all of those tactics in order to run an organization when there's so much on the line or you're in the process of rebuild. Um, and so how it sounds like failures and mistakes, not only by you, but by, you know, teams and, and where you have come in to have really um, fueled a lot of that learning. And, and tell me how you see failures um, in your career. Yeah, I, you know, you don't want to replay them. It's like in sport. You know, if you, if you take a bad shot, the last thing you want to be doing is thinking about that bad shot when you take the next one. But on the other hand, it does form and forge your career. You know, I would have been 23 when I just started working in a kind of package holiday uh, subsidiary of a, of a very large um, airline within the UK. And uh, one of our divisions was a, a ski specialist and we had a, a spate of thefts from a hotel. So I was asked to ensure that they had enhanced security. And I gave you know, the hotel staff the instruction to enhance security. And what they did was, was close fire doors. And we had a fire in that hotel. And I lost two colleagues and uh, one of our guests. Wow. And I was 23. And one of my responsibilities was to speak to the next of kin and explain the circumstances behind that happening. And, you know, that if you if you let it, it can it could destroy you. It can prey on your mind. You could feel so much guilt about it. And what I aimed to do was think about how I responded in that and how I would respond differently in future circumstances. And when I was with Air New Zealand, um, there was a day, November the 29th, 2008, and I was driving to work. It's about six o'clock in the morning. And I was in Auckland traffic and my uh, head of European operations rang me, which was quite unusual at, at that time in the morning. And he said, we've lost an aircraft. And 
at the time we didn't fly and he said we lost an aircraft off the south coast of france and we didn't fly there and i i was struggling to rationalize the information he was giving me and it was a it was a flight that uh, we'd loaned an aircraft to a, a german operation and they were handing it back and that's why it was over france and it had seven of my crew members on board and they all died in the sea of perpignan I was the first person to take the call. I was the first person to set up the crisis management center and first person to structure the emergency response uh, methodology. But come back to your question, can you ever prepare for something like COVID? No, you can't anticipate. Anyone would be lying to say they'd anticipate COVID. But you can prepare yourself mentally. Or any disastrous event in, in an organization, right? Yeah, you, you have to rehearse those. And the incredible thing about New Zealand was that we had done full-scale rehearsals for what might happen if you ever lose an aircraft every six months. And then we did mini rehearsals every three months, what we call tabletop exercises. So by the time that my boss uh, could actually be contacted and, and was part on the scene, he knew what role he should be doing, which was he was going to fly immediately to the scene of the tragedy. I knew what I should be doing, which was I was going to run the media side and going to run all of the internal staff briefings. So we all just fell into place. It was a terrible tragedy. It was a, just unthinkable. But we had all knew our place and we all knew our role. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from that time, and I look back on myself now because um, there was a National Geographic program made about it called Mayday Mayday. And you know, I've seen myself a number of times on camera and I look like a you know, deer in the headlights. But the thing that I've learned from that is uh, if you stay very calm and if you can slow the pace of other people's demands of you, if you can slow all of that down, you give people back that sense of calm and thoughtfulness in the way that you respond. So whether it was the, you know, that terrible early tragedy, whether it was uh, the tragedy in the time that I was in New Zealand. All of this comes together, I think, for a time like COVID uh, to help you slow the pace of what's happening around you. And, you know, I, I, after I New Zealand, I went to work in air traffic control. And there was one night when I was sitting late at night in the Auckland Centre, and I was sitting with a young female air traffic controller. She was very, very competent. And I was watching her keep a New Zealand 777 apart from an Emirates A380, and they were both coming into approach on the same flight path. And uh, she was communicating with both flight decks. And when, when she wasn't on the radio, I said to her, how do you cope with having a minute to keep those two aircraft apart with 800 people on board? And she looked at me deadpan and said, I'm just wondering what I should do with the other 59 seconds. And, you know, it was one of the most superb lessons in life for me of how much you can actually do in a minute. And, and, and how when you make a decision, you need to follow through and stick with it and trust your gut instinct, um, because otherwise you can sit, you know, forever and revisit it and just overthink it. And that doesn't really help anybody, right? Well, look what's happened in countries that have overthought decisions and then revisited them and, and flip-flopped. Yeah. You know, I'm from the UK, so maybe I can I, I can say this, but if I look at the, the way the UK government has responded to COVID, has been stay in, go out, uh, go to school, don't go to school, um, stay at work, go home immediately. Uh, you know, you could say Australia responded in a similar way, um, but I've seen, you know, th there have been countless governments that have given really contradictory and at times counterintuitive 
uh, instructions. And everybody around the world, no matter what country or what role you're in, is craving decisive leadership. Right. And you know, in an airline, that's no no different. I've got three quarters of my staff are remote, and they're rostered, and you know, they're not conveniently based in an office. They're they're doing highly responsible, uh, safety conscious jobs from from Halifax to Victoria, and they need to know that there is a kind of calm and thoughtful centre to the operations, so that the directions we give them make sense. And so when you are dealing with all of these stresses and big decisions, um, what grounds you? What keeps you going? What um, kind of refreshes you? Yeah, I, I, I start the week by trying to um, divide my life into four quarters. So I have, I have my work quarter. I have my family. I've got two of my kids who've been in lockdown in New Zealand who I've tried to stay in as regular contact with as I can. How old are they? Uh, my daughter's 23 and my son's 20, and I've got a son of 15 who's here. Um, but, you know, that, that's been another set of complexities altogether. Um, you know, my, my wife, you know, has spent time in the aviation industry oh. and is actually an ex-journalist. Uh, so she quite often interviews me to make sure that I'm battle-hardened before I <laughs> go and do nice. research. That's a nice person to have at home. <laughs> yeah, oh, very useful, best form of media training I could ever have. Um, but the other the other two quarters are my health, which is, you know, I'm kind of, you know, mid to late 50s now. So you're much more conscious uh, of maintaining a structure and a, and a routine around health because you have to be. Right. Uh, and then the yeah. fourth side, I, I call kind of call my spiritual and cultural side, oh. uh, which is more about keeping external interests. I mean, I love I still love uh, reading literature. I love listening to music. And, you know, I try and use those as my form of meditation because I'm really, really bad at sitting still. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm centered on reading a complex novel or listening to a piece of music that I love, then it tends to slow my heart rate down. And, and generally, I find that's a good thing. We're going to take a little break to talk about one of our sponsors, Shopify. The thought of starting a new business can be daunting. Trust me, I've been there. Choosing the right partners to help start and grow your business, as well as support you along the way, is truly important. One of the many reasons I'm a huge fan of Shopify is because their Shopify support advisors are available 24-7 to support you on your business journey. They're extremely helpful and always responsive to people like me who aren't the most tech savvy. Available at your beck and call, the Shopify support advisors are ready to help you every step of the way. Visit shopify.com forward slash Manjeet to start your free trial today. Once again, that's shopify.com forward slash Manjeet. Shopify, start, sell, market, and manage. Do you find comfort in structure? Like, do you have very structured days? Um, or do you find um, that you like to take things as they come? Yeah, you know, for me, it's about conserving energy and conserving mental capacity. So I try to take out what I see as kind of the less important decisions that I'm going to make during the day. What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for lunch? Where am I going to park? If I do those, you know, with exactly the same routine, uh, then I can concentrate on what I think are really big calls, like, you know, how do we structure processing refunds? What are the new routes we're going to fly? What are the new aircraft? You know, you're dealing with $200 million assets. Where are you going to redeploy them? 
you know, where do you think you're best going to film? I don't think I'd be serving uh, West Jetters or serving our guests as well if I were worrying about what I was going to eat for lunch. You're so right. My family thinks I'm so boring because literally I eat the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And I'm like, the only thing that I'm really into is, you know, fashion and wearing because I, I, I like that choice. But I don't like making many other choices. I've had the same cars forever. Like, I really do like that structure and not worrying about change, like change in me. Uh, if I have to get a new computer, which I've had to over COVID, it, you know, a new phone, I really don't like those things either. And I never thought of it that way as to, you know, get rid of those noise and distractions to make the bigger decisions that actually, you know, I feel matter rather than, you know, what type of egg I'm eating in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I have to be deliberately boring about a lot of the decisions I make because you have to save your energy for, for the really big calls and the times when you have to move, you know, really, really fast in crisis management or emergency response. Right. And if you find yourself worried, you know, I, I'm far less uh, fashionable or fashion conscious than you are. But I find if, if I find myself worried about what shirt I'm going to wear, you know, that's just for me, it's just taking up uh, brain cells that I should be using somewhere else. So do you consider yourself a perfectionist? <laughs> uh, I, I think there are 14,000 other people you could ask that question and they would say yes in a heartbeat. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And and it's interesting because you made that comment speed over perfect, speed perfects perfection, I think it was. And speed trumps perfection. Speed trumps perfection, I guess. Uh, speed trumps perfection. And it's funny because I've always um, thought the opposite because I do believe that, you know, every I has to be dotted and T has to be crossed properly and it's got to be ready for market and battle-proof tested. And, and because maybe in my world, it's a little bit different. You know, if you taste a vodka or a beer once and you don't like it, like you're not coming back, right? And so I've, I've always um, been um, a subscriber to the thought process that, a product in our case, especially products, I feel, need to be brought out um, in their perfect form. Sure, things could be tweaked, prices and maybe labels and colors a little bit later um, upon feedback, but very little. Like I, um, I put so much energy into getting it to market and then... I don't like to forget about it, but then I like to kind of uh, not think about yeah, those details again. There's part of my brain that is regularly saying to me about other people's work, let it go, let it go. You know, if there's a typo in, in a board paper, it isn't going to ground the airline. And, you know, what we do in the in a pre-COVID world, we were operating around 750 flights a day. Now, every flight, every single aircraft is a piece of ballet. You know, every flight is touched by 200 different processes. And you have to get every one of those processes, taking sewage off the aircraft, loading bags onto the aircraft, getting flight attendants and pilots on time, getting the doors closed. It is this incredible piece of choreography. And if I was sweating over every single piece of choreography on every single flight, I would drive myself and everyone around me demented. So you have to accept, you know, when the when the, the door closes on the aircraft, I'm not in charge anymore. The pilot's in charge, the lead flight attendant is in charge, and it's their responsibility uh, to make that experience as, as good as it possibly can be. So, you know, someone taught me a long time ago that you have to trust but verify. And, you know, my job, your job, 
We're not the captain on the pitch. We're the coach off the pitch. You know, air traffic control was almost the perfect metaphor for me for industry because you're controlling traffic, but you're not actually driving the traffic. And, you know, if I, if I tried to uh, influence or, or put my nose into every single part of our operation, um, I would fail miserably. But I will verify and I will hold people accountable and I will follow up where decisions are made that I, I think are not compliant with um, the standard we set ourselves. And, you know, that's a balance that we all have to strike in our professional lives. Um, you have to let, you have to tolerate what you let go. You know, there was a time in my career where I'd fret about people coming in at five past nine. And, and it's the, just the definition of irrelevant. It's all about outcomes and not input. And so, you know, what advice would you give to businesses right now? Because there's so many of them that have been greatly impacted by COVID. Uh, and, and how should they look to the future? Yeah. Um, number one, align your personal values with your company values. If you're not clear on how you've articulated your company values, now is the time to make sure that you are really clear. And I spend a lot of time thinking about my personal value, my, I have five personal values, uh, accountability, authenticity, aspiration, humility, um, and resilience. And probably it's resilience has been the most core to the fore. Right. But I'm constantly checking myself to make sure that my personal values are aligned to the way I show up for the company and the company's values. So number one, I'd say um, do that health check mm -hmm. of your personal values with your company values to make sure that it helps you remain authentic as a leader. Number two, delegate. You know, I delegated the crisis in the first week to an instant command center. Uh -huh. And we still stand that instant command center up twice a week. And I have 40 different functions in the organization report through that command center. So it comes back again to, to trust, trust but verify. So I, sometimes I sit in on those calls, sometimes mm -hmm. I don't but I know those calls are happening and I know the organization's running itself. And so is that, you have to, the point for the, um, sorry, the, the delegation, is that because you're looking for experts or you're looking um, to take maybe some of those heavy decisions off your plate when you've got other things going on or, or why the delegate? It's absolutely both. Okay. You know, my head of digital will do an infinitely better job in that environment um, than I ever will. And she knows that. Mm -hmm. My head of the contact center will make much better calls on, on dealing with uh, guest refund complaints than I ever can. And, and she knows that. Um, so they're just better at it than I am. You know, I've done most jobs over 30 years, Manjeet, in an airline, apart from I can't fly a plane and I can't fix a plane. You know your limitations, but, but give the authority to the subject matter experts mm -hmm. uh, and let them uh, make those calls. But I guess the third comes back to one of our, you know, our earlier conversations about uh, retaining that inner sense of calm. And even when you feel overwhelmed, uh, keep those moments uh, private, keep them to yourself. And I often tell a funny story about myself. There was one time, I think back in March, we were in the middle of a crisis. We parked 150 aircraft in the space of three days. It was just a, a scary time. And I was in the men's washroom. And sometimes when I'm really under pressure, people can tell because I whistle. Oh. So I whistle really tunelessly. 
And uh, there, was a, there was a guy in the washroom and he said, I don't think you should be whistling that. And I said, sorry. And he said, you're whistling the uh, David Bowie and Freddie Mercury song under pressure. And it's making me feel nervous. <laughs> and, and it really kind of reminded me, even when you're in the washroom, you're still on show. <laughs> and there's still people listening to what you're whistling. <laughs> uh, it, when I go to the washroom, people are pitching me most of the time because, you know, you <laughs> in my pocket ready to hand out. <laughs> Can I just go to the washroom and have people leave me alone? You know, it'd be really nice. But <laughs> Got it. Okay. Makes sense. And then so um, uh, align your values, delegate. And what was the last one you said? Uh, just uh, stay calm and uh, you know, just absorb and yep. make sure that the outside world sees the calm exterior, however much you're paddling beneath the water. Right, right. And 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 so I, I totally, the, those are really interesting and they definitely are um, points that you have not only executed on, but thought about a lot. And I think that comes to the rehearsal part um, that you talk yeah. about. And so as um, not only a leader and a CEO, but as an individual, um, how much do you like to be liked or does it matter to you being that you're a public person? Oh, look, everyone always teaches you that it shouldn't matter. Yeah. But I think uh, we would kid ourselves if we said you don't absorb uh, some of what you read, some of what you hear, some of what uh, your staff say. So, you know, I think being respected is infinitely more important than being liked. But I think people are liars if they say they don't want people to like them. I, you know, I think it's a great Canadian mantra that you can disagree with people without being disagreeable. And I love a sense of being very direct and being very honest with people. But, you know, I'm also conscious to say, to apologize before I do that. So maybe I've been in Canada long enough. <laughs> Uh, to well, get, get the apology in first. I, I definitely um, get harped on a lot and have my fair share of tools that, that I get a lot of criticism for being that direct and honest uh, about my opinions uh, to not only, you know, uh, on TV, but just in general in my business life. And, and that is, you know, I have to remind myself, actually, I have um, uh, five books. I can see them from here. And they say, you will be too much for some people those aren't your people and and it's funny because I do have to remind myself often too because I do think that I don't care uh, but I'm only human and in the end of the day um, sometimes I can blame it on the Canadianness. I can blame it on being a woman I can blame it you know I can make a lot of excuses but we all want to be liked in as leaders um, when we have you know thousands of team members that we're essentially you know working for um, every day you do want to be liked but it's it, it is um, not an easy thing to, to tell yourself, no, it doesn't really matter. But don't cultivate it. You know, you, you know, people who cultivate dislike are sociopaths. And I've got a book next to my bedside called The Sociopath Next Door, huh. uh, which is just a kind of, I sometimes use it as a reminder to say, don't be that person. Right. But I think if you go out and cultivate everyone trying to like you, you will fail. Very and it really comes back to your earlier question about the difference between fairness and consistency. You know, being fair in many people's perspectives is giving them everything that they've asked for. And you cannot do that and be fair. But if you're a consistent person, then you will surround yourself with people who like you because of the person you are and whose opinions you respect. Right. Who's and if you're disliked by people whose opinions you don't respect, 
you you have to let that go. It, it's interesting um, that I do find that your not only breadth of knowledge in uh, your industry, but also your way of thinking is very different in, in a lot of senses um, and more evolved than many of the people that um, that are around me here in North America all the time. And I, I don't know if I contribute that to European thought or just you moving around and having, you know, just so many great different experiences um, in your life that have contributed to your thinking and your, your outlook. Yeah, well, um, th- thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, my, my parents were academics. So I didn't come from a business background. And I think, you know, I spent the early part of my professional life pu- pushing against that academic background. And actually, the older I've got, the more useful it's become and the more kind of reflective and philosophical I've become. But you are the sum. We are all the sum of our experiences. And, you know, when I, if I speak to external recruitment companies or speak to headhunters and they say, you know, give me the 10-second version of the person you're looking for, I come back to the same description every time because I think to some extent, it's a description I've heard used about me, which is battle-scarred but still smiling. Right. And, you know, I think I am the sum of a number of very, very tough experiences at quite early stages of my career. Mm-hmm. But I aim always to put myself in somebody else's shoes, not because I want them to like me, but because I want them to understand. I want to understand how they felt right. to be uh, at the other, uh, on the other side of a table. Yeah, and, it's uh, very true. I, that's hard. I, li- I like that that battle scarred but still smiling because I often feel the same way. You know, not only as an entrepreneur, um, so many failures and so going up against the get big guys when we had nothing, um, never mind money and nothing, but no experience, no, you know, no operation, essentially, like just an idea. Um, and but also being a young, you know, woman dealing with racism, yeah. dealing with um, misogyny, dealing with all of those things and putting them all together in an industry that has been so male dominated, but also my education, being an engineer, I came from that. Like, I, I, I truly believe that, yeah, um, you have to let your experience um, define and build who you are. And I think that's a big part of why I have such a tough skin because I do have a lot of battle scars myself. Um, but I do think that it, being an optimist, because I truly am an optimist, um, helps me keep smiling and, and moving forward. Yeah, and you know, I sense, Manji, you have one thing uh, clearly in common with me, which is we both uh, benefit from reverse motivation. Yes. So when I was 17, I had a careers master in school who told me I was too stupid to go to university and that they would not support my application to university. Oh, my goodness. So I wrote to Oxford University and I said, could you send me your admission papers because my school won't support me? And I sat those admission papers and passed and got admitted. And I had to go into Sage's Careers Master. I just thought I'd let you know I've been uh, accepted into Oxford University. And, you know, that was one of the best things that happened in my life. And when you talk about encountering sexism, racism, when I hear people talk about um, discrimination because of uh, uh, homophobia or any other cause, Mm -hmm. then I am just so lost in admiration for the people who've had, you know, some of those visible uh, challenges that I've never had. And that's why it's so important to have an appreciation of the the obstacles that people have had to overcome. 
I've, I've had my own, but other people have a very different uh, course and a very different path. And uh, that's where I think it's really important, exactly as you described earlier, uh, to be a good listener before you're a good talker. And the person I've seen do that best, uh, I was just blown away when I saw him last year, was Barack Obama, mm. who when he's asked a question, will have this almost incredibly uncomfortable pause before he answers. And, and I just think that's just superb because he's actually thinking and reflecting and listening rather than speaking. And he was the president of the biggest country in the world. That's where the rehearsal is actually not a good thing, where it's actually yeah. uh, honest and it's not uh, just canned answers and because you are listening and, and formulating what your thoughts are. And, and that's a good point because many people will take that pause as weakness and or calculating. Um, but essentially, it, yeah, it, it's a good point that it's actually listening to what the question is and not assuming um, what it was or giving an answer that you wanted to give and not what was actually asked well which was mo which is what most politicians do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well thank you so much uh, for your time ed um i really really do appreciate it uh, look it's been a great conversation manjeet oh, i've loved every second of it thank you so much Ed, thanks for coming on the show today. Really a lot of insight, not only into your thought processes, your experience, your background, but really a lot of great advice that I think we can all use in our personal and professional lives. Make sure you tune in next week for another original episode of the Manjeet Minhas podcast. <laughs>